you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. If you want to open up your, your Bibles, we're going to be, I'm going to be reading two lectionary passages this morning. I don't typically do that, but um, I haven't preached in three weeks, so I'm going to like read every scripture that I can, just to kind of get that out of the way. Um, so good to see all of you here. We do have a lot of sickness right now, and you see a lot of empty seats around you, and many of them have been accounted for just this week. They've, they've told me they've been very sick. In fact, this morning, uh, Olivia's not with us. She woke up yesterday with a high fever. I, all week, was off and on with a cold and fever that then triggered a migraine yesterday and, or two days ago and yesterday as well. Uh, so just a lot of sickness going around. So if you see somebody today that's not here and um, you want to encourage them this week, make sure you do that. Pray for them. There is a lot of sickness and a lot of kiddos that are sick right now with colds and viruses. Uh, in fact, while we were at Disney, uh, Olivia and I both got sick. Olivia and I seem to be sharing everything right now. I'm not sure. These two are completely immune. I don't know. They're like in a bubble. Um, but even on our trip, uh, one night of the cruise, I, I, I was sick. It was a combination of a virus and seasickness, I came to find out. Yeah, that's brutal, by the way. That's like super test of your faith right there. <laughs> it's like I was going out and hoping Jesus would appear on the water and calm the sea. Um, yeah, at first I thought it was seasickness and ended up with a fever that lasted a couple of days into it. And then at the end of the trip, Olivia caught it and said so she wasn't able to go to some of the parks with us the last day she spent that, the, the last day in the resort kind of hanging out and watching TV. Um, but yeah, just remember one another in prayer. There's a lot of things going on in our body, not just sickness, but a lot of families just really going through some things and dealing with some grief and, and some struggles. Uh, but those who aren't here, many of them are joining us online uh, through our Facebook feed, and um, you can also access that through our app. So we have a lot of folks that are watching that way as well and kind of keeping up with things, so we are certainly not uh, completely absent from their presence. All right, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 1. That's the first place we're going to go. And then uh, if you want to use your Bible and if you're taking notes or anything like that, we're going to jump in uh, after this to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to go from there. Jeremiah chapter 1, starting at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. 
Luke chapter 4. Now this is going to seem like you're jumping into the middle of a story, and that's exactly what the lectionary does today. Uh, so this is one of those times where we're going to break the liturgy code of the lectionary a bit, and we're going to have to provide some context later on. So don't fret, you know, if you're reading this and you go, what in the world is happening in this story? Don't fret. We'll all catch up in just a moment. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm in verse 21. Now, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? And then Jesus gets triggered in verse 23 from that question. Uh, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, a prophet is accepted, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they, all heard, when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. And they get triggered. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through them, excuse me, but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Both of our lectionary readings this morning revolve around the announcement of prophetic calls. You may not have saw it in the Luke, in the Luke Scripture, but we're going to cover it. Um, but both of these passages revolve around a moment in which a prophetic call is either received or is announced. Jeremiah in chapter 1, in fact in the first three verses, if you just glance back there, early in Jeremiah, the narrative of that book of prophecy starts off with Jeremiah being called to be a prophet as a very young boy. Even from his mother's womb, he is called. God's showing intention, even in the unborn, that he has this intention, this call on Jeremiah's life. Uh, in the other passage, we have Jesus announcing a prophetic call. Jeremiah is called by God at a young age to be a truth teller and a nation shaker. Jesus, on the other hand, has just finished announcing his prophetic ministry. And he's done so not by quoting Jeremiah, but by quoting Isaiah. And not just quoting it, but laying hold on that claim and claiming that he is the one that now has Isaiah's prophetic anointing. That he is indeed the fulfillment even of those words which Isaiah uttered. If you want to glance back, that's actually in charts in verse number 16 where Jesus makes his way back to Nazareth. Now, in Luke's narrative, it's kind of funny. It, it says, do the things you did in Capernaum, but Luke hasn't even talked about what Jesus did in Capernaum. So we have a little bit of things that are out of order here in terms of uh, sequence in Luke's narrative. But what we have here is Jesus entering into the synagogue in his hometown, standing up in the midst of them, as was the custom, to read from the Scriptures, and reading this. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, 
He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of the synagogue were all fixed on him. Then our reading today, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Both of our readings this morning not only revolve around this idea of a prophetic call, whether it is being given or whether it is being announced, but in each of our readings this morning there is an objection to the prophetic ministry, some sort of an objection. And those objections both are based on the unqualified nature of the supposed prophet. In Jeremiah's case, Jeremiah objects to his own calling by citing his age and his poor speaking ability. How can I do this, God? I don't even know how to talk. I'm just a young boy. To which God says, one of my favorite little rebukes of resistance to the prophetic call in, in the Old Testament, God looks at Jeremiah and says, don't say that you are just a young boy. Because these prophetic calls, these callings that God puts on our life transcends our own qualifications, right? And so we have this objection from Jeremiah. On the other hand, Jesus, in announcing his prophetic call, received some objection by the home crowd, who apparently, when we read this story in other narratives, who apparently ask in a condescending way, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the guy who grew up around us, who grew up in this town? In another gospel, it's asked, how can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Who is this guy? Who does he think that he is? Now, last week, we were introduced to the practice of wandering. By the way, did y'all enjoy the service last week, right? I got a lot of feedback on that. It was really, really cool. I think it's something we'll, we'll probably see do, us do more and more here uh, from time to time. But last week, we were introduced to the practice of wandering. Uh, something that our children are exposed to every week in kids' church. Now, this is something I've actually, this is a practice I actually adopted years ago as part of my sermon preparation. I just didn't call it wondering. Um, but if you were to go and look at any of my sermon prep notes, the very first page, the first thing I do is I write down every single question that comes to my mind when I read a passage before I've researched it. Right? Like, what are the first questions that surface in my mind? Um, so I didn't necessarily call it wandering. A lot of times my initial questions were just me thinking more about the text and not so much about the theology, although that certainly uh, factors into it from time to time. So this week when I read the Jeremiah passage, I decided to wander a bit rather than just ask some questions about the text. These are some of the things I wondered about. I wonder what it's like to be called by God at such a young age. I wonder what it's like to have that kind of responsibility laid on you and to have no confidence that you have what it takes. I wonder what it's like to stand before others more qualified and speak for God. 
I wonder what it's like to simultaneously feel like you don't belong and also feel like you're exactly where God wants you to be. Now, I'm no Jeremiah by any stretch. Um, Certainly wouldn't want to take this text and co-opt it for myself. However, I've always felt a certain kinship to Jeremiah, a certain relationship to him, especially given his call narrative because it's somewhat similar to mine. I know a little bit about what it's like to wrestle with some of these questions. I felt God's call to ministry when I was 16 years old. I was very young, made it known at 16. Had my first ministry job at 18. Pastored my first church at 21. Yeah, it's crazy, y'all. It really is. Insane. I didn't come from a ministry family either. In my denomination, your ministry generation carries clout. Right? You often hear ministers say things like, I'm third generation Church of God pastor. Right? And that immediately, like, you're up there, right? You know, when you start getting into fourth and fifth tier, it's like, man, that's clout. Super clout. Um, I didn't come from any of that. I had none of that coming into ministry as a vocation, as a career. Um, my dad had never been a leader outside of the local church setting. He was inside the local church, but never outside. My mom was always faithful to the local church, but few people knew her outside of that. When I first entered ministry, I would go to places and spaces, and I would feel completely out of place. I didn't know anyone. No one knew who I was. I was from a small town, a small church. Uh... I would say at that time I had this, but I think I still have this to a degree. I had a really deep southern accent that was hard to shake. And even at 16, my voice hadn't completely changed yet. Um, If you were to listen to my first sermon, it's incredibly squeaky. And yes, it does exist. I have it on tape at my house. And if you get close enough to me, I may share it with you one day. Um, I lived a very sheltered church life growing up. My mom and dad didn't allow me to go to youth camp or anything like that. So I didn't really know anyone in the culture. I was young. I was very immature, both in life and spiritually. And yet I knew that God had called me. And I knew that each place that God had put me is exactly where God wanted me to be. It was never a question. And while lots has changed for me over the years, and I've grown into my calling and my skin and all those kinds of things, to this day I still live with that tension of feeling completely inadequate and undeserving and yet confident that I'm doing what God has called me to do. To put it mildly, I'm a chronic sufferer of imposter syndrome. A chronic sufferer of imposter syndrome. Now, in Luke, Jesus isn't wrestling with his own call as Jeremiah is or as I have. In Luke, Jesus isn't wrestling with his own prophetic prophetic call. It is his audience who is wrestling with his prophetic call. Jesus has just announced to them what sounds like a good message. In fact, they spoke well of him. They said, he has gracious words. And their question, while condescending, must have come from a genuine curiosity. Especially in the way Luke frames it. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now something about this question triggers Jesus. 
And I know we always want Jesus to be super nice and kind and friendly and all of those kind of things. But if we're honest with the narrative here, Jesus becomes somewhat of an antagonist to his audience. They're asking a simple question. Isn't this Joseph's son? Valid question. He's blowing their minds with what he is saying. He's blowing their minds with what he is claiming. And Jesus responds to their possibly well-intentioned but condescending question by quoting a Jewish proverb that identifies their cynicism. He says, you might want to say to me, doctor, cure yourself. Which was a proverb that was often used to criticize those who tried to deal with others' shortcomings before they dealt with their own shortcomings. <clears throat> it's almost like saying, who do you think you are? If you're so good, fix yourself. Don't worry about me. <clears throat> Jesus' antagonistic posture to their questions about his family and his hometown seemed to point to the way that he saw their hearts. Clearly he was right. By the end of the story, they respond by pushing him to the edge of the town and trying to throw him over a cliff. <clears throat> now I started preaching way too early. I have never preached a sermon so bad <clears throat> that at the end, people tried to kill me. I got close one time. I had a guy try to close me in his big diesel truck door one time, like slam it on me. Uh, but that wasn't the sermon. That was because uh, I had called him out on his lack of leadership and issues. Yeah, I was young, by the way. There was a lot better way to do it, and I wouldn't have got slammed in the truck door, <laughs> just so you know. But precisely, what was it about Jesus' discourse that triggered them so strongly? Jesus had just announced something that was deep within the ethos of the Jewish culture, that one day God would give this eternal kind of jubilee to the people of Israel. Jubilee, by the way, as a year in, in the old law, the old Jewish law, was supposed to be a year where prisoners were set free and everyone's debts were forgiven and the wealth was shared even with those who were blind and sick and poor and needy. And Jesus has just announced to them that they are on the precipice of the Jubilee. Today, this is being fulfilled in your ear. The acceptable year of the Lord, the year of God's favor, of God's jubilee, is upon you. This is good news, he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to announce the good news. But the good news was for some specific categories of people. The poor. The prisoner. The blind. And the oppressed. What they were missing in the initial hearing of Jesus' reading, when they thought his words were gracious, and when they thought it was awesome what he was saying, was that this vision that God was now bringing to pass in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, was a vision of God doing something new among those on the outside of their own community. The poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed weren't just metaphors 
for the synagogue's crowd, for the synagogue crowd's own personal life struggles. He wasn't speaking allegorically just about their struggles and what they were dealing with as a community of faith. But he was offering a radical reimagining of the year of Jubilee in which literal social structures would be flipped upside down and God would be found not working from the center of the community of faith out, but that God would now be found working from the edges of the society in. And I think this is where, like the synagogue crowd, the church crowd needs to take notice. As we often imagine ourselves to be the sole locus of God's activity in the world. To the extent that we feel sometimes in our culture that protecting the church from outside censorship or persecution is necessary for God to do what God wills to do in the world. But Jesus offers us a new perspective here. He reminds the synagogue crowd that it is not outside the realm of possibility that God would choose to do something new among the outsiders of their community and not among the insiders of their faith community. In fact, Jesus says, not only is it within the realm of possibility that God might be doing something new and it's starting out here, not in here, he quotes from their own historical narrative instances in which God worked among people on the outside of the community of faith and not those who were on the inside of the community of faith. And he picked two of the most scandalous stories from the stories of Elijah and Elisha. The first one coming from the story of Elijah. While Israelite widows starved because of the famine, which Elijah announced, by the way. Talk about carrying pastoral guilt, by the way. I always, I always identify with Elijah as well because nobody was given such a difficult message to preach to people like right in their face as Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah declares there's going to be this famine and there is, there's no rain People are dying, people are starving, people are watching their children starve, they're watching their elderly parents starve. And Jesus points out that while Israelite widows starved in the famine, Elijah was sent to a Gentile woman in Sidon who was miraculously fed and sustained and who later became a benefactor to Elijah's own ministry as a prophet. And then he ups the ante even more and gets even more scandalous in his quoting from their narrative, from their historical narrative, with the story of Naaman, who was a general in Syria's army at a time when Syria was an enemy to Israel. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Naaman. He's a general who came down with leprosy. He had heard that there was a healer in Israel. He goes, he tries to buy a miracle. He never actually has an encounter with Elisha, but through the messenger is told to go and wash seven times in the river Jordan and he will be healed. This general of an army, which was an enemy to the Israelites, was not the only person in the land who had leprosy. 
as Jesus reminds the synagogue crowd. While Israel was full of good, God-fearing men and women who had leprosy, God chose to heal an enemy general. Not only was he a general of the enemy, and not only was he a Gentile, in the story, he was not even a very obedient person to the word of God. The prophet says, go and do this. And Naaman was reluctantly obedient to Elisha's instruction to bathe in Jordan. Nevertheless, he was healed. You see, Jesus' antagonism in this text reveals one of the great flaws of religious thinking. That those who think they are closest to God based on the community they worship with may be those who are most open to being deceived and may miss where God's activity actually is. On the edges and among edge people. Now churches and ministers who dare even think such things will inevitably find themselves as outsiders. Aligned with those whom God is now working in and through. It's scandalous. It's so scandalous that those who dare to even question or offer such a possibility may find themselves living on the edge in more ways than one. Pushed out by those who can't bear the thought that God may be working on the edges more than he's working in the center. David Ostendorf, I'm going to quote extensively here from him in just a moment. Because why reinvent the wheel? Says it best, when he speaks about Jesus in the synagogue in this text. Here now was the insider who suddenly becomes the outsider, speaking of Jesus. Within a moment's time, he goes from being one who's blowing their mind with gracious words to one that they just want to throw off the mountain and be done with. Here now was the insider who suddenly becomes the outsider. Here now was God acting in the particularity of Jesus of Nazareth. Here, now, was the beginning of a new narrative out of the ancient narrative, out of and dramatically beyond the solid foundations of the people of faith upon whose ears it fell. This is God at work, as God has been at work across the millennia, as God is at work even now. Unfolding new narratives with, through, and among particular people who are often outsiders to the assumed faithful. The good news that God bears through Jesus is concurrently jarring news, infuriating news to the temple stalwarts who push him, rush him out of the city to throw him headlong down the hillside. The good news is not the narrative they were used to, not what they expected from the living God, who had come once again to break through their calcified 
ways. So it is with new narratives born of God. In the midst of the global complexities of this era, this century, the church faces the daunting possibility, indeed the reality, that God is unfolding a new narrative through the particularities of outsiders, of edge people who come to God and bear witness to God through God's actions in edge places and occasionally in temple settings. Deserts, drought-wrecked lands, famine, struggling widows, dying children, disbelieving commanders, servants, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus. Now choosing, like many of Jesus' disciples did, to follow a Messiah who was headed away from the center and out to the edges comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. Jesus was very clear to his disciples whenever they were called that they would pay greatly, even with their lives, if they chose to follow him in this journey to the edges. Moreover, when we look at the call narratives, even of the apostles and the disciples who followed Jesus, what we find is a roll call of people who are unqualified or who would be considered unqualified by those in the community of faith. Foul-mouthed fishermen. Yeah, they were. Peter said, get away from me, right? When he was called, get away from me. I, it's like Isaiah. I have unclean, an unclean tongue, unclean words. Foul-mouthed fishermen, prostitutes, the poor, the blind, the maimed, the uneducated, and even the formerly dead. A list of unqualified people occupying a space on the edges with more unqualified people and paying the price for it. And so I wonder, I wonder what will happen if we step into our callings despite our feelings that we're unqualified, or even the reality that we're unqualified. I wonder what it, like, what it looks like to be a church on the edges being led and shaped by edge people rather than by those of us who are in the know and have the clout. I wonder what God is already doing among those outside the community of faith. I wonder what revivals we're missing. I wonder what resurgences we're not a part of. I wonder what we're missing on Sunday mornings that those on the edges might have already found and are getting. I wonder if we are ready to stand on the edge of the cliff 
and trust that God has our back. Musicians, come forward. We'll get ready to receive communion. I'm sure many of us probably have varied answers to some of those wandering questions. And I don't know that there's necessarily a right answer or a wrong answer to any of those. But what I do know is that these scriptures invite us to ponder those kind of mysteries. To set with those kinds of questions. Lest we end up so prideful and so deceived as the religious crowd in Jesus' day was that we miss the wonder and the beauty of what Christ is doing in our world. While we entertain ourselves with the weekly routines that fuel our desire for personal piety, what radical things might God be doing among those who are the least welcome in our setting? I wonder what it feels like to be a prophetic voice who knows and feels deeply unqualified that doesn't fit in in any of the normal settings but is exactly where God wants us to be. Stand with me. Our servers can come on and get ready. We'll receive communion this morning. If this is your first time with us, we want to invite you. You may come and take communion with us. We have open table. Everyone is welcome. If you don't want to, that's fine. No judgment. You're not required to. No one will think anything of it if you don't. We also have some prayer partners standing at the front this morning that would love to pray with you if you have any needs or anything you want prayer for. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to spend time with you and love on you. And if, um, and like we said earlier, if it's your first time here, make sure to let us know because we want to get to know you as well. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.